0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Kevin Clowther, Assistant Professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha Writers Workshop, where he is Program Coordinator of the MFA in Writing. Kevin Clowther is the author of We Were Flying to Chicago, Stories, published by Catapult, His stories have appeared in the Gettysburg Review, the Greensboro Review, Gulf Coast, the New Orleans Review, and Puerto del Sol, among other journals. And he's contributed essays to The Millions, NPR, Poets and Writers, Salon, and Tin House. He holds degrees from the University of Virginia and Iowa Writers' Workshop and is the recipient of the Richard Yates Fiction Award and Jell Residency Award. He is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha Writers Workshop, where he is program coordinator of the MFA in Writing. Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Casting your mind back, do you remember when you were young, uh, literature, reading, writing, uh, being being a part of your experience when you were when you were younger?
1: I do. I was a I was a pretty creative kid, and so I didn't privilege writing over other kinds of creative activity. I used to draw a lot. I used to act. I used to make up things. I'd create worlds of my own. But writing was a, was a persistent thing. Probably the earliest memory I have is creating a newspaper for the neighborhood I lived in in Massachusetts. So I would go around and interview people about things that were happening in their life. And because I was just a kid, People would tell me things that they wouldn't necessarily tell other people. So I actually had a few scoops. I found out about somebody who was uh, getting engaged. I found out about somebody who was buying a dog. Uh, there was a, everyone in my neighborhood had somebody named Kevin. It was a very Irish Catholic neighborhood in Massachusetts, and there were these uh, boys. The uh, the Kellys, there were a bunch of Kelly boys, and two of them, Kevin Kelly and another Kelly, were both getting dogs, and the dogs were both female. And so one of the headlines was, "Kelly Brothers Get Sister Dogs." That was an early success in the newspaper, and uh, I still have those copies. I I typed them up on a, on a typewriter as a sidebar. I told my my grammar and style teach a grammar and style course at UNO to upper division undergraduates. And I told my undergrads the other day that when I was young, I used to write on a typewriter because when I was young, people didn't really have personal computers. And a student came into my office a few days after class, and she told me that she didn't believe me that I wrote on a typewriter, <laughs> and I said, no, it's real. She said, but that's what people used a million years ago. And I said, no, you know, when, when I was growing up in the 80s, that's what people did. They wrote on typewriters. I said, did you have a uh, a flip phone when you were younger? And she said, yeah. I said, I had a flip phone. I said, people won't believe you that you had a flip phone when you tell people 15, 20 years from now. They won't remember a time before smartphones That's what typewriters were like back then so yeah i was i was i was writing i was doing creative stuff and i was reading my grandmother my mother's mother was a great believer in reading and uh so anytime i went over to her house we would go to the library where she volunteered or we would go through the world book encyclopedias that she had in her house and before the internet if you wanted to look something up and you were a kid the world book encyclopedia was about the the best option you had and we didn't have one in my house we only had one in my grandmother's house so that was something we shared going through that that uh that encyclopedia and looking stuff up the reading and writing was always was always part of my childhood for sure
0: did you see it within your household were were your parents and any siblings you have were they keen readers were they themselves creative people
1: no no, my parents weren't keen readers. My mother reads a lot now, but she didn't when I was growing up that I can recall. Uh, and they weren't particularly uh, uh, creative people either, uh, although they were great storytellers. A lot of the people in my family were wonderful at telling stories. Uh, and one thing I remember is that the men in particular were oftentimes, to my mind, most themselves when they were telling each other's stories and trying to make each other laugh that was the that was the greatest thing you could do if you were a a man uh, in my family growing up and probably still to to a large extent now uh, make everyone else in the room laugh and so people were forever telling stories and they were wonderful storytellers but i don't think any of them would ever have thought to write those stories down it just wasn't part of their day-to-day life
0: your collection of stories we were flying to chicago although I would have to say that as wry and charming and funny on occasion as they might be in moments, I wouldn't call that a collection of comedic stories. Were you ever tempted to write comedically, at least at the beginning?
1: So one thing that happened when I got to college and then later to graduate school is I sort of became obsessed with the idea of becoming a serious writer uh, joining the canon, <laughs> so to speak, and the writers in the canon uh, whom uh, I were reading were not particularly comic writers. Now, there are writers who are very funny. James Joyce is very funny. you read Ulysses; it's a very funny book. Um, but I wasn't thinking about Joyce as a as a comic writer. you know The Dead, for example, is not a particularly funny novella uh so i conflated serious writing important writing literary fiction with a certain humorlessness and it seemed to me that if i was going to become the kind of writer i wanted to be i needed to get serious and it wasn't until i'd been writing for a long time uh you know 15 years, every day, six days a week, that I began to lighten up a little bit. And I think that came in large part from having kids. I think when you have kids, it's really difficult to take yourself as seriously as you used to, because there are so many ridiculous moments and kids are forever putting you in circumstances where there's no pretending that anything that's happening is sober. And so when I began to, uh, lighten up a little bit and and maybe put my, put my guard down a little bit, I started putting more humor into my, uh, writing. And now when I look at the, the work that I'm doing, it sounds more like the voice I have in my day-to-day life than the voice I had earlier, which which seems to me looking back to be a little bit more affected. I can see the, the strain in it looking back that I didn't necessarily see in the moment.
0: I adore the idea of your local newspaper and <laughs> <laughs> the audacity of scooping, scooping news for your neighborhood. And maybe this is, maybe that's the answer to this question. I'm wondering though, when... When in your life did the thought occur to you, whether maybe it was a slow revelation or an epiphany, that writing was not just something you enjoyed doing, but it was the thing, the thing to do?
1: So, this I actually have an answer to. Um, I was in high school and I was reading a lot, and I had an overwhelming reaction to reading some of the fiction and poetry that I was coming across for the first time. And at at that time in my life, when I was 16, 17 years old, so many things felt monumental. Uh, Romantic feelings felt monumental. Eating a cheeseburger could feel monumental. Sunrise, you know, piece of art I saw. It it all felt like it was happening for the first time. Uh, Certainly the music I was listening to affected me very powerfully. But the writing affected me more. The things I was reading, I felt more intensely than anything else. And so I decided when I was 16 or 17 years old that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to read and I wanted to think about writing and I wanted to teach writing and that was going to be my life. And I was going to go to college and I was going to get the degrees I needed to spend the rest of my life reading and thinking about writing. And it was only when I got to college that I took a creative writing course and realized that people were still writing stuff today because at the the high school I went to, we never read anything that was written more recently than mid-20th century. So the idea that people were still writing books had not even occurred to me until I got to college. And then the idea that I could write a story or I could write a book certainly had not occurred to me until I got to college. And then when that happened, I said, well, I want i want to do this instead. I don't want to just read and teach books. I want to try to write them too. And I was in this wonderfully creative, strange environment in college where everybody just supported whatever strange idea you had in the moment. And so if you wanted to be A writer, if you called yourself a writer, nobody called you out on it. Nobody questioned it. They just said, that's great. Uh, I lived in this sort of a, a misfit residential college of people who were sort of, you know, drawn to it because of its strangeness. And so any artistic thing you wanted to do or any... Uh, unusual thing you wanted to do or thing that went against the mainstream culture wasn't questioned, if anything, it was celebrated. So when I decided, oh, I'm going to write stories now, it was the most natural thing in the world in the place where I was living to do that, even though it hadn't really ever occurred to me until that very moment. Um, and so I started writing stories and taking all the English and writing courses I could, and then I applied to graduate school, and, and when I got to graduate school, the people there cared more about writing than anyone I'd ever met in my life. And there was this extraordinary commitment to the enterprise of writing. And I saw how hard people were working at it and how much they cared about it, how seriously they took it. And then it felt like something I could just dedicate the rest of my life to. If I worked hard enough at it, maybe I could begin to make other people feel some of the things i'd felt when i was 16 or 17 and and reading for the for the first time in a in a sort of adult way i can't remember it was i think it was john cheever um the paris review asked him uh, whom he wrote for i think it was cheever and he said that he wrote for the the teenager walking through the library picking a book randomly off the shelf opening it with no sense whatsoever Of what you might find in there, and I just thought that was the coolest idea that you could write something that would wind up on a bookshelf, and somebody might pick it up and read it and feel something or experience something that they never felt or experienced before. I couldn't think of anything more appealing than that, and I think I still basically feel that way.
0: Who do you write for?
1: I think for that person. Yeah, I think that's the. I think that's you know as attractive an idea as any, just somebody who picks up a book with no idea what's in there and gets lost in the world and feel something, either feel something that they weren't expecting to feel or is reminded of something they felt before but didn't know that language could be put to it.
2: and a clowning just to keep from crying I'm laughing and a clowning just to keep from crying I keep on Trying to hide the fact I've got a worried mind. Let me tell you, being life of the party,
0: as these stakes and the revelations keep occurring to you 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 move from being 16 years old and having this idea that this is what you want to do but then it sounds as if the intensity of the commitment of other writers around you just got stronger and stronger did did you ever have doubts about your capacity to make this work or even whether you had the talent to bring this off
1: i probably should have had more doubts than i did um but I kind of felt like if I cared about it enough and I worked hard enough at it, there was a chance it would happen and that and that was enough. I, I you know, I didn't have the expectation at all, and I don't have the expectation now that anybody will care about anything I put on the page. But, and this is important to me personally, I never sit down to write and feel like it's time poorly spent i always feel as though what i'm doing when i'm writing could matter um there's a passage and i know this is i can't remember if the earlier one was Cheever, but i know this one's from from william faulkner where he told the paris review that he's unhappy with everything he ever wrote um but that every time he sits down to write he feels like this is going to be the time when he says what he wants to say And I feel that way too. I feel as though every time I sit down, this might be the time when I can actually put the images and experiences in my mind on the page in such a way that somebody else will feel them. Probably won't happen, but it seems possible.
0: Would you expand a little bit and reveal to us a little bit your process of this craft? And I'm especially interested in perhaps how that has changed, given the pressures of life you've talked about being a family man you've talked about how clearly you've moved as well with your career so i'm I'm wondering about the craft of it, but perhaps how it's had to bend and shape and transform, given that we live in a real world here
1: yeah, when I was younger, I would map my stories out quite a bit, and I had a sense of what was going to happen in x scene and how the the scenes were going to combine to to form a whole. And looking back, what I was doing, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but but what I was doing was some pretty studious mimicry. I was taking stories that I liked. I was figuring out how the author had put them together. I was copying that structure and I was trying to do my own version of it. And at a certain point, I became conscious of that, and I stopped doing that completely. I stopped mapping things out at all, and I just started with a question that interested me enough to think about every day, but that I knew I didn't know the answer to, and I would just try to write my way through the answer without knowing where I was going until I reached a point where I'd said all it is that I thought I had to say. And that's what my process is for the first draft for anything I write now. I don't map out anything. I never have any sense of how long it's going to be. I never have any sense of where it's going to end, how many scenes it's going to consist of. I just keep working toward a resolution. And usually what happens is I end sooner than I expect. So if I'm writing a story and I think to myself, I always think a story is going to be about 20 pages. So if I'm, I'm writing a story and I'm thinking to myself that it's going to be about 20 pages, oftentimes what happens is I'll, I'll get to page 15, I'll write a sentence and I'll think to myself, okay, that's the end of the story. There's nothing else I have to say about it. And then it will change in revision and things will get moved around and maybe it'll get longer, maybe it'll get shorter, but it usually ends before I think it's going to end. I don't know that that is a process I would recommend to anyone else. And I don't know that it's by any means the most productive way to write. But I've been doing it long enough now that it's hard for me to imagine composing in any other manner.
0: Maybe maybe this is a good time then to segue into the craft of writing as you teach it. So tell us a little more about the MFA in writing and what's happening in uh, in that regard.
1: Sure. Well, I was enormously fortunate to have as my thesis advisor in graduate school the smartest person I've ever met, Marilyn Robinson. And in the workshop I took with her, she had a way of teaching that I've copied and um that i find to be very useful even though it's not i believe the way that many other people run their workshops or think about teaching what marilyn would do and what i try to do is find the part of the story that's most resonant the, the real beating heart of the piece even if that part is utterly tangential to what the story is about and then try to encourage the writer to nurture That part of the story and build around it, even if that means reconceptualizing the story completely. I think what oftentimes happens in a workshop is that the instructor tries to honor the writer's intentions as best the instructor can identify them and then help the student to do whatever she's trying to do. And I think that's a a totally reasonable way. Of running a workshop. The problem with that model, and the reason I don't teach that way, is because I think oftentimes writers have very little sense of what they're trying to do. I think oftentimes writers have a misguided sense of what it is that's working in a story. And I believe one of the things the workshop is actually good at is pointing out what's happening on the page that the writer herself may not be aware of. So whatever is resonating, whatever feels like it's working or is important in a story, that's what I try to help the writer make better in her revision. With the understanding, which I say explicitly in the beginning and then again over and over throughout the semester, it's completely up to the writer what to do with the piece. These are all just suggestions from me, from the other students in the class. So that's how I run my workshop. Now, the MFA, we do something that maybe there are other programs that do this if there are i don't know i'm sure there probably are but but it's it's a little unusual what we do is we typically have two faculty members in each workshop which i think has a couple positive effects one is that it sort of minimizes the sense that the faculty member is a singular authority and that the students are all there to learn from the person who actually knows uh, what the answers might be. Um, so I think it's nice to, to kind of, uh, take that, that singular level of authority and and disperse it a little bit. That's one good thing. A second good thing is that the faculty members oftentimes have wildly different senses of how to make a story better. And so I just described my approach, but that's by no means the approach of everyone, every faculty member in our program, nor would I want it to be. So you can have two different people in a workshop with two very different senses of how to make a story better. And I think it's wonderful for a student to be able to hear that, to, to, to know that there's more than one way to improve a piece. So I really like that our workshops have the, the two faculty members. Uh, sometimes we only have one, but for the most part, we have two faculty members. I think that's really nice. Another thing that's wonderful about the University of Nebraska MFA is that the workshops are are so small. And so usually we have around, oh, let's say five to nine students in a workshop. And so everybody really has to carry their weight to make that that workshop uh, productive, which means that everybody has to, to take it very seriously. And I think that's the most wonderful gift you can give to a writer is to to take her work seriously i mean i think the most wonderful gift you can give a writer is time give the writer time to to go do what she needs to do but in a workshop to take her work seriously to think about it to reread it to make client edits to write an editorial letter to spend an hour talking about it as though it really matters uh and that's what happens you know you have the small group there's no hiding everyone has to participate everyone has to to be accountable to the work and so you have these small workshops you have two faculty members. And so I think the students get a really great workshop uh, when they're part of the, the UNLMFA. And that's just one of the, the components. The other two main components, the other two main formal components, are a series of, of, of craft lectures on different things and stage and screen, poetry and fiction and creative nonfiction. Uh, and then readings. All of our faculty members read, all of our visiting faculty read. And when I was a young person, I it never occurred. I mean, first it never occurred to me that people still wrote, and then second of all, it never occurred to me that I actually hear a person read. I used to go to readings all the time when I was a student, and I found them to be utterly magical to hear the words and in, in the person's voice. I loved them, and I still do love them. And so, for our students to hear twenty readings at a residency, all all those pieces, those poems, and those stories, and those plays in the author's voice, I think that can be really, really magical. And you feel it in the room sometimes, you can you can feel the the energy of everybody holding their breath when they're really given over uh to the spell that the writer in the front of the room is casting. And so, you know, we have these these ten day residencies where we do the workshops and the lectures and, and the readings and they're really intense. You know, if you want to be working, you can be up working from eight thirty A. M. until Way into the evening, just totally immersive. And then all of our students and faculty disperse. You know, they go back to where they live. We're low residency, so our students and faculty live all over the place. We have faculty in California and Florida and Connecticut and uh, Illinois, and we have students in Oregon and New Jersey and Texas, and you know. So they all go back to uh, to wherever they live and. Then this intensely communal experience transitions into something totally different, which is a one-on-one mentorship where the student and the faculty member she's assigned to work one-on-one on their project, uh, And that's that's really an overwhelming experience for a lot of our students because they get a lot of attention. Their work gets taken very seriously. They get asked to produce a great deal of work. And for many of them, that's when they begin to feel like they're really writers, like they're really doing this because they have deadlines, they have people who expect things of them, and they have to produce. And I think what oftentimes happens is that when students come back to, to the residency after that first one-on-one mentorship, there's, there's been a change. There's been a sea change in the way that they think about themselves and, and what it is they want for their for their lives and and for their careers that's very gratifying for me to see as a as a coordinator
2: i don't care for fireworks so-called funny things I don't need a fancy car, diamond rings Just give me a rainy day, with nothing much to do Cause everything is magical, whenever I'm with you Anywhere is paradise, any time is right Every song's a symphony, pure delight All it takes is you and me, sitting in my room Cause everything is magical, whenever I'm with you
0: Something that sounds quite magical, and so, given we're recording this in December, let me be the Grinch and break that spell, (laughs) (laughs) and ask. There's the beauty in this whole endeavour, and then I'm thinking about the business of the academy and the cost to the student of acquiring what is no doubt a meaningful degree. But I'm sure there are angst-ridden parents out there saying, "An MFA in writing? What are you? What are you going to do with your life?" How does this translate for students into something that seems to make sense to them as they proceed into the rest of their, of their lives?
1: So one of the nice things about our program that differentiates it from a number of other programs is that almost all of our students work full time or um, have retired from work or are at a place now where they're transitioning into a different career. And they come to our program with open eyes uh and a very clear sense of what they want from it. If an applicant is coming to the program for what I perceive to be suspect reasons uh, because they think for example that they're going to be the next j k. Rowling or the next stephen king and and this is going to be a tremendously financially advantageous career move uh I have a candid conversation with them about how difficult it is to make any money at all in publishing and how difficult it is to break into the academy and get a full-time teaching job writing uh, if people are, are coming to the MFA uh, for primarily financial reasons then we talk about that and in fact in the at the Awp conference in san antonio this year awp is the the largest uh host the largest uh, writing conference in north america each year at the awp conference in san antonio texas i'm chairing a panel on uh, the issue of debt in creative writing and what responsibility programs have to their students in terms of what kind of debt they're taking on what the um, uh, expectations are in terms of what they might use that degree for, et cetera. So the first and most important thing, I believe, is to disabuse prospective students of notions that they might have that that aren't rooted in any sort of reality that, that we all live in. That having been said, I think there are two good reasons to get an MFA from our program. I won't speak for other programs. Two things that I'm happy to see when I read an application. One is that the student has a creative ambition or a project but does not know how to actualize that ambition or that project on her own. That's a need that I know as a program we can help with. And that's a need that I know because I have in in the past and continue to have in the present that need myself and I know how important it is to me. And so it's not hard for me to understand how it would be important to other people as well. A second very different good reason to come to the program, in my mind, is if you need that terminal degree to move on to the next step of whatever it is you want to do. There are any number of people who want to go into teaching or arts advocacy or arts administration who need a terminal degree to apply for those jobs and if that's the case for the profession that you're pursuing then I want to make this degree uh, as useful to you and uh, uh, I want to make your your experience as financially uh, responsible uh, as possible so uh, you know there is a, a business side of it and people who are interested in becoming not only uh, teachers, but uh, publicists, or editors, uh, or agents, or administrators, or employees in any number of organizations. Uh, If that's the career path they've imagined for themselves, and they need this degree, then I want to make our degree more attractive than other degrees might be. And so if you compare how much our degree costs to comparable degrees Uh, It's certainly uh, very competitive. Uh, You know, regionally, I don't think that you're going to find anything that's less expensive than our program. And one of the reasons we have people coming from all over the country is because it's more financially advantageous for them to come to Nebraska City twice a year for 10 days than it is for them to go to the programs that may be closer to them. So there are about fifty low residency MFA programs in the country, and if you live in the Northeast, for example, there are any number of programs to choose from. But we have people who come to ours from New York uh, or New Jersey uh, because it's cheaper for them to come to Nebraska City twice a year than to go to the the more local program.
0: You have studied at some prestigious programs and with some notable writers and. Writing teachers, you yourself have taught at a number of prestigious institutions and with a number of um, great outcomes. What have you seen as you've taken that journey and what are you seeing now in terms of trends in either writing, the content of writing, what people are writing about, what they're moved by, and any reciprocal response to that in how people teach, what they teach, and the process of teaching?
1: Yeah. I mean, Anytime I think you find yourself talking about a trend, you're probably talking about something that's already on the way out. So everything I'm about to say is on a certain level already passe because it's coming out of my mouth. Um, I lived in New York for ten years before my family moved to Omaha and you know, New York City, if people were talking about a neighborhood and certainly if the New York Times was writing about a neighborhood that neighborhood was already well past its moment so anything that i talk about now is going to a certain extent already be extinct but there there are two things that jump out one is the huge increased interest in what's sometimes referred to on the fiction side as auto fiction or on the creative non-fiction side uh, the, the memoir or the memoir autobiography uh, when I was an undergraduate twenty years ago, autofiction, fiction, you know, borrowing from autobiographical details, was not in any meaningful way an important part of the larger literary scene. And the memoir was certainly something that people were writing and and talking about, but not with the uh, interest and enthusiasm that people are talking about it today. So there's there have has been over the last 20 years a clear increased interest in things that actually happened as opposed to things that people are dreaming up, both in fiction and in creative nonfiction. And when I look at the program that I administer, most of our students are in prose, most of our students are writing fiction or creative nonfiction. We have more students in those two areas than we have in poetry or playwriting or screenwriting. The creative nonfiction students are oftentimes writing about their experiences, and the fiction writers are oftentimes writing about their experiences. This is a good thing insofar as stories that would never otherwise have been told and experiences that would have never otherwise been thought about, aren't, those stories are being told and those experiences are now being thought about. There are a lot of difficulties though. Students, writers worry about what happens when their lives are on a certain level commodified. When you sell your experience in the form of a personal essay or a highly autobiographical story or collection of essays or memoir or a novel, you have to be careful about how those experiences are going to be sold, and you have to make sure that the people who are selling them are selling them with your uh, best interests in mind. If you trust the people who are in charge of sharing your stories, then you you may be in good shape. but you got to make sure that you trust them first because once it's out there, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. That's on the publishing side and the workshop side, you know, putting out your experiences on the page can be enormously rewarding it can also be very difficult and and painful to relive some of those things so the increased attention to autofiction or the the personal essay or the memoir i mean that that's obviously a major trend over the last 20 years which means that it's probably being phased out as we speak the the other thing that is a major trend the second to my mind major trend and i don't think this one is going anywhere anytime soon is the increased attention to voices that have otherwise been marginalized uh, particularly the voices of women and people of color and people who are differently abled and i think there's a great appetite in the publishing industry for telling those stories and i think for readers fiction and creative nonfiction and poetry and plays and films th- this is some of the best way to to really have a sense of what it means to to live somebody else's life, and people are beginning readers and, and audiences are beginning to understand the kind of lives that people have lived have been living for years, decades centuries, and they had no idea that it was going on and and, and what better medium is there for communicating that experience than the book you know when I think about what I've learned in my life from reading, there's nothing analogous. You know, two things raised me, one, my mom, two books, and that's it. That's how I learned how to be a human being. Well, who was writing most of those books for most of the last 2,000 plus years? Pretty small group of people. Well, only in, in the last couple decades, less really, has that uh, group of writers expanded and so now readers myself included are getting access to all these perspectives that we just didn't know about and and that's going to stick around because publishing has found a way to sell those stories and so long as they can sell them they'll keep doing it and so you know sometimes there's 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 virtue in publishing if they can make money off it they'll they'll keep doing something that's good and and so i think most people in the writing world are rooting for this to keep happening because it's It's a good thing for readers. Readers are getting a much larger sense of what it means to be a human being.
2: I must have got up about 20 to 7, had a shower, and had breakfast, and uh, had a couple of pieces of toast. You know, forced it down and had a cup of coffee, so it was pouring with rain and I thought, oh god, you know, put out England. I get this writer's block, it comes as quite a shock, and now I'm stuck between a hard place and the biggest rock. In my own head consumed, I sit back in my room, it's like the tapestries of life get tangled in the loom i'm like a butterfly caught in a hurricane my pulse is quickening as my heart plays a new refrain i'm loving mary jane flying with lowest lane on board a bullet train don't know yet if i'm glad i came don't know yet if i'm glad i came obviously this helped me i think don't know yet if i'm glad i came don't know yet if i'm glad i came i always hoped that it would happen but i never
0: Speaking of a good thing for readers, let's turn to your book. You were touring and promoting the book and were interviewed by Jennifer Abel Kovitz, And I rather liked what she wrote, and so I'm just going to read it. She said, each of the 10 stories in We Were Flying to Chicago is contemporary without being ironic or glib, offering a glimpse of stark vulnerability, faith and hope. Hypnotizing us with the deceptively simple rhythm of the ordinary, the short story collection offers a moment of change, the view over the cliff, the breath before a decision, a sidelong glance of impending news. Uh, Award-winning author Kevin Clowther skillfully slows time to note the visceral emotional impact of an everyday moment. I think that's rather nice. It is nice. Yeah. What were you hoping, now that you've written it, might readers... Intuit or interpret or absorb from this collection of stories?
1: I think about the reader a lot when I'm writing. And I tell my students that it's important to think about the reader when they're writing, that there's a meaningful difference between writing for yourself and writing for somebody else. If you're writing for yourself, it's like a, a diary and you can have a private language and only you need to understand it. But if you're writing for somebody else, then you need to communicate in such a way that you teach somebody how to live in the world that, that you've built. So I think in, in terms of how can I communicate in such a way that the reader can can live inside this world for a while. But in terms of what I want the reader to get from that world, uh, how I want the reader to, to think about that world, what I want the reader to feel as a result of spending time in that place, I don't think about that at all.
0: To some degree, this is a collection that is now in the public realm. It's open to the interpretation of readers like myself, and I found myself resonating with use. You, uh, you used this expression earlier about um, being being moved by something that you found familiar, and so the young boy in Isabel and Colleen, I, I found myself entirely resonating with with that youngster, and and the moment when he realized that love was lost and it probably wasn't even the right love anyway. So there's something, I guess, for everybody to interpret. Does does it bother you, that idea, that once you've released it into the world that there will be readers like me that choose to interpret this in whatever way we choose to interpret?
1: No, I think it's beautiful. Some of the happiest experiences I've had as a writer are receiving these little... Bits of feedback from people here and there. I got a postcard from this guy in Montana one time, you know, telling me how much he liked the story and I, and I get these messages on Twitter now and then, people telling me how this or that resonated, um, including one that I got recently from somebody who said that when she was reading the story, she recognized one of the books that I'd referenced in the story because she'd read that book when she was a kid too. And it so happened over Thanksgiving that I was at my mother's house and she's in the process of moving. And so I found that book and I opened up to the page that the person had referenced and I showed it to my mom and I said, you remember reading this book? And she said, yeah, yeah, I remember. And I said, well, I wrote about it she said, "Where?" I said, "I wrote about it in uh in the book in the story collection." She goes, "Oh, I don't remember that." I said, "Yeah, well, somebody noticed they they'd read that too, and they remembered it and they liked it." So those little details are they're just wonderful. They're wonderful to hear, is what I mean. And when I read something that moves me, you know, if the writer is some rock star who's never going to read any fan mail, I I won't bother with it. But most writers aren't rock stars. Most writers are just people struggling to get by. And so if I read something that blows me away, I always send the writer a note. I write the person an email, or I write the person a letter, or I find the person on social media, and I say, this is great. I love this. Keep doing it. And almost always they write back and say how
0: much they appreciate it. We have maybe 60 seconds left. I'm going to allow you a complete 60 seconds, Kevin, to um, (laughs) tell us where you'd like to go with the conversation. Something that people ask me a lot when I give
1: readings or I talk with people is what they can do to get better if they want to write. And since we only have probably at this point 30 seconds, I'll say that there are two things. They're not original things, but they work. Uh, And one is to write every day if you make it a habit like brushing your teeth, something that you have to do that you don't even think about, you will get better. And number two is to read widely. I've learned more from writers who are dissimilar to me aesthetically than I have from writers who are doing things that I'm trying to do myself. And so if you write every day uh, and you read really different stuff, you will get better. And if you want to write, that's all you got to do. The only thing that will Prevent you from becoming a writer is is not doing it.
2: There should be a book, a book where I can look to Ooh
0: I've been in conversation with Kevin Clouser, assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha Writers Workshop, where he is program coordinator of the MFA in Writing. And he's the author of the story collection, We Were Flying to Chicago. Kevin, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me,
2: Stuart.
0: Was that a weak segue? I thought it was a good segue. That was pretty good. (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar Mctizic. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's Radio Show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.